welcome to the Cult of Domesticity podcast, a podcast about history, true crime, and whatever life brings us. I'm Courtney, and every week I am joined by another fascinating person. Let's see what we're going to talk about this week. So, hello, friends. We, we're back. Well, I'm back. Yay. And Lindsay's here from, the, <laughs> from 33% Pulp. So that's exciting. Hello! Um, I'm excited. Yes. I was going to say, hopefully by now I've recorded my little, like, break thing to say, hey, this is what's going on. But who knows? Who knows? Motivation-wise. It'll, it'll, it'll happen. It'll get done or it won't and then it'll be fine. You know. <laughs> so, yes. Lindsay is here to tell us a story since you guys are done with your second season and now I'm sad because I just listened to the, the pulpies. And agreed with everything this morning. I was like, yeah, uh-huh, that. <laughs> yes, the pulpies. For my um, podcast, 33% Pulp, We at the end of each season, we do this, like, award ceremony for, like, the best uh, villain or something, you know, for the five books that we covered in that season. Oh, I should make, so my podcast, we divide a pulp novel into thirds and my friend Daniel and I, and then a guest host will read a third of the book. And then over three episodes, we tell each other the story. And so, yeah, the pulpies come at the end of the season after five books and we honor like the best supporting villain and the best, the worst night out and things like that. So that was a fun uh, episode and then um coming up we have season three and that'll be exciting that's yeah I'm, I'm pumped for it we have some some cool stuff ahead yeah in addition to this which is also cool thank you so much for having me of course this was planned way ahead of time before the incident um so <laughs> <laughs> it, it's exciting that everyone's <laughs> being so loving and supporting which is awesome um, of course, of course. I have to say, I you do good stuff here. Thank you. I was very upset with the ending of the last book. Like it just kind of ended, and I was like, "Wait, oh. what? It's done." Yeah, Daniel felt the same way. Um, and we've actually gotten a listener request to instead of having like a ninety-nine word uh, flash fiction contest this year, to have some kind of contest where. Um, people can submit new endings to books because, yeah, the last book that we read, The Infinitive of Go, kind of just, uh, ended, it literally ended with an ellipsis. So that was disappointing. Yeah. Uh, especially with, yeah. It was a very interesting book in many regards. <laughs> especially considering. I loved it. <laughs> it was good. It was good. It, I loved it. Yeah. I do like that one of the characters' name was cinnamon and she got to be mm -hmm. a scientist mm -hmm. like it's like let's get some ethnicity up in here in tech positions mm -hmm. so it's nice but yes yeah so cinnamon was like a really cool um african-american scientist that was that was superb in every way although it, during sex her face melted that was concerning but you know besides that <laughs> You know, when that happens. <laughs> when that happens. Do you want to go first or would you like me to go first? I can go first. I can go first. Um, okay. I'm doing the Donner Party. Yes. And there was a book called Ordeal by Hunger. 
And so I, I have a little title that I would show you in the camera if we were on camera, but I, I have a title for my little script or, of notes here. It's Ordeal by Hanger, like hangry. <laughs> like, I thought that was funny. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that's just funny to me. That's a good um, one. <clears throat> but for those of you who don't know, the general overview is... Um, and I'll get more into the details in a minute, of course, but the general overview is during the Great Migration West slash, like, expansionist Manifest Destiny uh, era, this group of um, families tried to go from Springfield, Illinois, to California. And what happened was they tried to take a shortcut, and they got delayed, and then they got snowed in, and then... They were just there in the snow for a very long time. And there was some survival cannibalism. A lot of history books will talk of the Donner Party and kind of fe not fetishize, but kind of exaggerate how much um, the survival cannibalism there was. Um, but what was really interesting to me as I was researching this for the uh, podcast was all of the other factors like race and nation and class that played into the psychological um, relationships among the different, like 80 some people in this party. It's not just one family, it's several families. So, oh, yeah. Um, Let's get into that American mixing yeah. pot. Let's just stir it all up. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, um, boo, 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 boo. during the 1840s, the United States saw a dramatic increase in pioneers or settlers or, you know, U.S. colonizers who left their homes to uh, in the east to settle in Oregon and California, which is where we both are, right? Well, I'm just north of Oregon. Look I went to I went to Oregon to get gas today and groceries because I need to eat food. And there's no sales tax, state sales tax in Oregon. Fun fact. <laughs> so it's cheaper. <laughs> That is super, because in California, there definitely is sales tax. Um, so a joke at the time was that a, a California man, like, approached the gates of heaven, and the archangel Gabriel advised him to go back, because California is a heap better country than this, <laughs> that being heaven. Um, but this whole, like, philosophy of manifest destiny was was basically all over the place, that these European Americans can go wherever, and... They just needed to tame, like, the land, the frontier. They needed to settle it, and, and then they can have it for themselves somehow, and without regard to the people who were, like, already there. Um, you know. But, uh, <laughs> you know, those, those people. There were people here, um, what? Never. Europeans don't like to put flags no. on things. <laughs> there, there was an incident where, because California wasn't a part of the country yet, right? It was, it was just territory, um, owned by, like, Mexico, I think. And at some point during this whole ordeal, like, um, they raised a flag and it looked like a pig. And so the people, the people indigenous to the land there were, they were like, why the fuck are they raising this, like, fabric with a pig on it? Like, <laughs> and it was supposed to be a bear, like a California bear. Oh but, my gosh. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Yes. Let's get the pig bear up. <laughs> in in 1842, Lansford Hastings, um, an early immigrant from Ohio to the West. Woo -woo. <laughs> Ohio, woo! He, he ends up being kind of sketchy, but it's okay. So he published this book called The Emigrant's Guide to Oregon and California. Um, this was a massive book that inspired a lot of people to head 
west and it was basically like a guide so go here and then here and you can get your stuff here right super handy this was also around the time that president polk james k polk uh polk decided to manifest his own destiny to annex mexican territory that would become california new mexico and arizona the Mexican-American War began in 1846 and serves as a backdrop to the whole story. So the Donner Party, like, on their, like, journey didn't really encounter this so much, but it did hold back one person um, from going to rescue them by, like, four months. And so well, that's, uh, that does play a role. Yeah, that that would help. Yeah, if you're, try- if there's, like, a war going on, I could go help these people, but there's a war near me. Right. Oh, dangerous. Um, that said, they did not miss the native Shoshone in uh, Utah and Nevada, the northern Paiute, and the Miwok tribes. Um, they actually encountered several tribes along their way from Springfield, Illinois, to California. Um, that particular year, there's a historian who counted the deaths like murders um, between the emigrants and the native people. And that year, this historian, I forget his name, said this is admittedly imprecise, but he counted, I think it was four mur- so four murders of um, emigrants. Sorry, excuse me, the indigenous, which I don't know. Seems low. That seems low. Seems low. Seems real but- low. <clears throat> But in addition to race, culture, and religion, and nation, class was significant as well, because what is typically uh, referred to as the single Donner Party was, in fact, like several um, families, and then at some point, two Miwok guides, Luis and Salvador. Um, Yes, there were two guides at some point. (laughs) They probably picked him up along the way. They're like, please help us. We don't know. We're we're lost. And -and so-and-so won't ask for directions. (laughs) And we really need directions. They did not. They did not ask for directions, and that was significant and um, pretty bad for them. They didn't have Google Maps. They didn't have Google Maps or like aerial view or anything, <sighs> because that would have also been useful if they could see where they were going. They probably wouldn't be going the way that they went. Darn it! Um, on April sixteenth, eighteen forty-six, nine brand new covered wagons rattled slowly out of Springfield and headed west. So typically the trip took five months if you went by sea and four if you went overland. But for many in this group, the trip would take like about a year. So that's... So they Lewis and Clark that shit. They did. They did. Actually, there was a lot of like Lewis and Clark references in the books that I read. Um, By the time they left Independence, Missouri, about a month and 250 miles later, they were a part of a 500 wagon caravan. Um, and because you had to be kind of rich to travel, all but a few lacked specific skills in, and experience in traveling the mountains and, like, arid land, and none of them had any knowledge of Native Americans. So these were all, like, super rich people who were like, yeah, like, I could do this. Like, they went to REI or whatever, and they got their, like, sleeping bags, and they were like, good to go, you know. <laughs> I got some food. I got a gun. I got a wagon. What else am I missing? Uh, survival skills. That's the big thing. Right, exactly. Thing. That's what they didn't have. And they just assumed, oh, we'll just, you know, stay with the wagon tr- train and everything will be fine. Uh, and neither of those things ended up being true. So there were two, two main families. There were the Donners, which uh, were like 22 people about. Shit. And the Reed family, which was 12 people about. And then there were other families um, 
One that I noted was uh, led by Levina Murphy, who was a widow and, and 37 years old. She led a group of 13 people in this train. And then notably, uh, the last one that I want to kind of pull out is Louis Kiesberg, um, who joined with his wife, Elizabeth Philippine. I, I kind of pull him out because he comes up at the very end. But during their travels, a man called James Breen, who was traveling as well, mm-hmm. called Kiesberg a tall and powerful, quick-tempered and easily irritable man. <laughs> a number of them noted that Kiesberg seemed to be abusive uh, to his wife, Philippine, who had just given birth to their first son. Some of them said that he was an outright wife beater. Virginia Reed, 12 at the time, wrote that Philippine Kiesberg was a humble and unassuming woman who was cowed down. He treated her like a brute. She was afraid of him and yet made all sorts of excuses for him, end quote. So this is by 1846 standards. <laughs> like Shit. these, this man and this girl were like, that's like, abs- like a lot. That's a lot. What he just happened. <laughs> so they uh, traveled the Oregon Trail um, from Independence, Missouri. Going about, at this t- point in time, 15 miles a day. Not bad. Uh, on a journey that took, not terrible, for like a group of 60-some wagons or whatever. Um, and, and this usually took about four months. The The most difficult part of it was the last 100 miles, and they knew this because they had to cr- cross the Sierra Nevada mountains. Yeah, they're pretty big. That particular mountain... Yeah, yeah, that particular mountain range has 500 peaks each over 12,000 feet, or 3,700 um, meters, I guess. Hi. I almost said miles. That's <laughs> not true. Um, I mean, I think I've seen a bunch, enough of them now. I just see the mountains all the time. I'm just like, man, a lot of mountains out here. There's some more mountains. Yeah! Some more mountains. Mountains, Pro- mountains, mountains. More mountains than in Ohio, I bet. Yeah, there's no mountains. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you get towards, like, Pittsburgh area, then there's some mountains. So they had they they knew that at the very end it was going to be the hardest because it was, like, steep on the east side of the range and snowy at the top. And then just it's just going to be a shitty route. So aware of this, James Reed was excited to read Lansford Hastings' letter. Um, he had sent these letters or left these letters at these forts along the way saying, hey, I worked out a new and better road to California and said that he would be r- waiting at Fort Bridger to guide the emigrants through the new cutoff or like shortcut. No. So by July, after a good three months of travel, uh, the wagons were in Fort Laramie celebrating Independence Day. What? Woo. I've been, wait, wait, I've been there. I've been there. <laughs> yeah? Wyoming? Fort Laramie? Yeah. We stayed there. Yeah. <laughs> wow. You did go the Oregon Trail. A little bit. <laughs> I just took 80 all the, most of the way That's across okay. the country, so I think it's part of it. There were signs. Yeah, definitely. There was a lot, because I had to look at maps to understand, like, where these landmarks are, and it does, like, follow the 80, I think. Mm-hmm. So they, they rested there. Um... But soon they were facing slow, muddy terrain, and the wagon wheels were sinking into the ground, leading to speeds of two miles a day. And the temperature hovered around 102 degrees for six straight days. So people were getting fussy. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. But onward they went to meet up with Hastings at Fort Bridger in Black's Fork. 
So here's the thing. Although Hastings had sent and left all these letters and notes like, hey, I'm going to meet you in like uh, Fort, whatever it's called, Bridger. Um, just come meet me. And I got this way, whatever. He had never actually gone that way with wagons, which is significantly different than just a solo guy with a horse or whatever. So really well planned out. Yeah, a real, real, real piece of work, this guy. Fort Bridger also was, uh, uh, was run by Jim Bridger and his partner Pierre-Louis Vasquez in Black's Fork, Wyoming. Um, this guy, Edwin Bryant, had reached there, gotten, knew that, like, the Donner Party was going to follow Hastings, right, to, down this route, and he started ahead of them, and, um, he was like, there is no fucking way, like, all those wagons can make this. So, this guy, um, Edwin Bryant went back, backtracked to the uh, fort and was like, hey, you need to tell these people do not go this way because it makes no sense for them. They're going to have like such a difficult time. Right. And um, turns out. So the guy who is in charge of the fort like would mm, it would be better for him if they went that way because then they would buy more supplies. So he did not pass along this message to the Donner Party. And um, then they just kind of followed Hastings down this way that uh, was fairly untried for wagons. Um, yeah, there's like no water. It's rugged country. Oh, excuse me. He told the party that the shortcut, this is the shortcut, this is what the Donner Party was told. It was a smooth trip with water all along the way, devoid of rugged country and hostile Native Americans, and would therefore shorten their journey by 370 miles. Can I call bullshit? So, it's bullshit. But to be fairish, like, they had been following this original route since April, and they had been making good time. Um, even though that there had been, like, few a few weather delays the hardest part as tamzin or tamzine donner george's wife like kind of the matriarch of the whole thing she was like oh the hardest part isn't starting this is a pleasant journey right <laughs> so it's at this like crucial point where they decide okay we will go on this new untried route right that puts them where they end up um so they leave they leave fort bridger um and this route would ultimately add 150 miles to their journey. Further, because literally like no wagons had gone that way, there was no clear path to take. So when necessary, the men were cu cutting brush and trees and moving rocks um, to pave the way, which slowed their pace to one and a half miles a day. It seems real fast, or you know, moving a mile and a half a day. <laughs> so is... fast. So fast. Plus you added Can miles. you imagine? Like you could... You could like look back and be like, we were there yesterday. I mean, it's not, it's, ah, uh, God, that must be so depressing. Plus, it was super hot. Um, it was super hot at this point. I think I read like it was even hotter than before. It was like 106 degrees at oh, this point. Um, that's too hot. So everybody is getting pretty worried because they're like, they know that if, um, they need to make good time so that they don't get caught in the mountains. Right. And so they're like starting to get real anxious. Uh, they're now at the Wasatch Mountains. As the Donner Party made its way across them, they were caught up by um, the Graves family caught up with them. So this kind of indicates, too, how slowly they were going because they had to clear the way. And here this whole other family came up and like caught up with them because they had cleared that path. Right. So it kind of shows how slow they were going. Yeah. Um, so Graves family caught up with them. And so now with the Graves family, they have 87 people in like uh, 70 wagons. 
It's a lot of wagons. So it was August 20th. It's a lot of dang wagons. Oh, P.S. I didn't note this. I don't know why it's gone from my script, but, um, the Reed family. First of all, Reed was apparently like friends with Abraham Lincoln <laughs> and had a lot of money from lead, uh, mining and his, wagon his main wagon was like two stories tall and was called the pioneer palace and it had like this indoor oven stove thing in it and it was like basically like an rv or something and so people were actually that at his class and his general demeanor like oh i'm better than you or whatever um created a lot of issues among the group members which we will see in a minute but his class was definitely part of that can you imagine pushing a two-story wagon up a mountain no i can't and i I, they eventually start to leave them but like even the regular wagons so they well yeah they do crazy things just to keep these dang wagons so i mean well obviously because it's got everything they own in it but still um so they get to the top and they're looking out it's, it's August 20th. They look at the, they're at the top of the Wasatch Mountain. They're looking out and they're like, Oh my God, we have more desert to cross. And it's like twice as much as we just went. <laughs> so they are arguing. Um, it says doubts were expressed. <laughs> um, so yeah, they're arguing and the food and supplies at this point is around August 20th began to run out for some of the less affluent families. So now they're in the Great Salt Lake Desert. Um, after 36 hours, they set off to traverse a 1,000 foot mountain that lay in their path. They see one, they see, quote, one of the most inhospitable places on earth, unquote. And at this point, their oxen were already fatigued and their water was nearly gone. Oh, shit. Um, which is bad times. So the party pressed onward uh, on August 30th. Because what else are you going to do? Like, you can't cross the mountains back. Um, In the heat of the day, the moisture underneath the salt crust rose to the surface and turned the soil into a gummy mass. The wheels of their wagons sank into it, sometimes up to the wheel hub. So they are going so slow. And, like, imagine all these animals that are, like, out of water and pulling these dang wagons. Um... The days were hot and the nights were cold. They would use every piece of clothing they had and then put their dogs on top for warmth at night. Because they had a couple dogs. They had one dog called Cash and another one called Towser. Um, so here's some details about like their hygiene, which didn't exist. Because uh, no one had clean water to drink for sometimes over a week at this period of time. Ooh. Yeah. If it happened at all, a bath would be had in a shallow, muddy, sulfurous, alkaline stream. Meanwhile, so like they, they smell like it's it, it's not good. You yeah. smell like you came out of hell. Meanwhile, yeah, like you came out of hell or like a rotten egg, or but it gets worse. Oh my god! So actually, there's like ton that I just never thought of. Um, so meanwhile, they quickly ran out of clean water to launder with. Right, because of course, any clean water you have, you're gonna drink. So their clothes and bedding became worse than smelly. They became infested with lice, bed bugs, and fleas. Nope. They smelled like sweat, urine, excrement, halitosis, yeast infections, and menstrual blood. Because they, the women, like, there's just no hygiene. Um, they had torn up or used all the fabric they had during patch repairs on clothing, on the wagons, so women didn't have the means to tend to their time of the month. Toothbrushes were a rarity, not patented. 
I was gonna say, could you imagine the worst time to have your period than like if after you ran out of cloths and stuff and you can't even clean them? Oh N- no! And you're out of water and and food, and you're looking at each other like, why are we here in the desert in the middle of nowhere? And then you're like, it's no. hot, and you have cramps, <laughs> and you're just like wanting to die in the wagon. Yeah, it it can't. Well, and it's around this point. Well, they start to leave people behind. But let me. So they um. There's, toothbrushes aren't a thing. Mm-hmm. They weren't patented until 1857, and they weren't pa- mass-produced until the 1880s. So it wasn't uncommon to have rotten teeth. This was like a normal thing. But in their journals, they were like, our teeth are rotting. So even for those standards, their teeth were like not in good shape. <clears throat> so... At this point, they start to leave some of their wagons and oxen behind because they just can't pull anymore. Um, the cattle and oxen were now exhausted and lean, but the Donner Party crossed the next stretch of desert relatively unscathed. So September 26th, two months after embarking on the cutoff, the Donner Party rejoined the traditional trail along a stream that was uh, became known as the Humboldt River. Okay. So the shortcut, quote unquote, probably delayed them by a month. In other words, they were a month closer to winter and with a month's deficit of rations and like physical energy. And they had been like leaving oxen and wagons along the way. That's not good. So uh, not good. N- uh, not good. So remember, they like started in April, like mid-April. So October 5th, James Reed killed 25-year-old John Snyder. Apparently, like their wagons got caught up in each other. Like they had a r- wagon crash or something. And um, like... Like they start arguing, remember, and a lot of people don't like this James Reed guy because he's the rich guy and John Snyder, they just picked up randomly at the like last Ford or something. And um, John Snyder apparently used the butt of his gun to hit James Reed. And possibly by some reports, he, like they said that he hit Margaret Reed, James Reed's wife. So James Reed like lunged and like plunged a knife into John Snyder's chest and it killed him. So everybody's like, oh, fuck, what do we do now? Because we're in the middle of this desert and this guy just killed this guy. And um, now what? Like, we can't have this murderer here. And this other guy, like, has a noose and he wants to hang him and everything. And um, the they're like, no, 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 no. Let's just let's just calm down. How about we banish him? So they banish him. They give him a horse and they're like, bye, like, go away. Bye, bitch. Um, they didn't give him any food or like weapons or anything but his daughter um somehow like snuck out and rode ahead and caught up with him and gave him like food and a gun so he's he's gone he's worse off than uh captain jack sparrow being left with a gun well kind but in the same sense as like jack sparrow kind of like always is going to be okay i feel like this actually was a good thing for everybody because that meant that James Reed could just go in his horse and go ahead of all these people with the wagons and the children, you know, um, and the and the dying oxen. So he could make fairly good time. He actually made it to safety uh, around, yeah, October, like eight, that same month he made it to like safety. So and he he's the guy who like got caught up in the war and couldn't head back for four months because um, he, he was caught up in the war, I guess. Battle of Santa Clara. Back in like the wagon caravan, like what happened was just a symptom of or like an, a flare up of what was generally happening. People were angry. People were upset. People were hungry. Like they were hangry, right? Yeah. Um. So 
So at this point, to relieve some of the weight from the oxens, they tell everybody, like everybody has to walk. So the children, the women who had been riding in the wagons, they have to walk um, to relieve some of the uh, weight for the animals. Um, they leave a couple people behind. They're old people that they're like, you. if you can't... The, Lewis Kiesberg, the guy who beats his wife, said to this older man, he was like, if you, you're, you're just dead weight. And they, he kicked him out of his wagon and left him behind. What a dick. Um, so he's, yeah, not the nicest guy, but I don't know. It's, it's tough because it's like, what, I, I, that particular guy, I think he's an asshole. But I mean, it's tough because like, fuck, what do you do? What do you do? Like, do you, do you leave the old people behind? Do you let them like stay on the wagon and slow you down? But he, like. Yeah, because he can't, like, add anything because he was so old. He was too frail. He couldn't walk, right? So he couldn't add any labor or do anything. And so it's like he's just, like, dead weight. And it's just unfortunate. Um, super sad. So faced just one last push over the mountains that were described as much worth worse than the Wasatch, right? This is the Sierra Nevada that everybody's afraid of. They decide to pull over and <laughs> pull the wagons over and rest for a minute. Um, it was, <laughs> it's, it's not a good idea because it's the October 20th and, um, they were told that the pass would not be snowed in until the middle of November. Okay. So they're like, okay, we have a day or two to like relax. Let's rest our bodies. Right. And then we'll plow through the Sierra Nevada as fast as we can. Um, at the same time, their supply, their supplies were so diminished that they ate their dogs. Isn't that so sad? I mean, that's so sad, I think. They ate Cash and Towser. You gotta do what you gotta do, but it makes you sad. So October 20th, they're like, okay, we'll be fine if we just, like, rest up and then do a solid push, right? Unfortunately, snowfall came early that year. So they're they're facing a massive, nearly vertical slope of a thousand feet to Truckee Lake, which is now known as donner lake right so how the hell are they gonna get all their shit up this like thousand foot like wall hopes and dreams um hopes and dreams will get them up there. yeah so th they 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 at this particular lake which they ended up get getting to i i didn't i guess include how they got there so what they ended up doing is they took the animals individually up there and um then had like i don't know ropes or chains or something and then had the like animals like pull the wagons up the wall because there's no way that the wagons could go any through through the pass. It's it's yeah, it was intense. So there was a few ca uh, cabins at this around this lake that were there from a couple uh, groups like uh, the prior year. These other white people like built them, and so they were like, "Cool, there's cabins." Um, so a bunch of the groups made it up to the lake, but the Donner Party like couldn't. They couldn't make it, so they ended up being like a half day away from the other people. But this accounts for like if you see any of the maps, like this accounts for like why there's a few cabins around a lake, and then the Donner Party is kind of off in the distance. And you're like, why? I thought they were all together. Well, they just couldn't make it up this uh, cliff. So, winter camp. The winter of 1846 was unusually cold across the entire northern hemisphere. In Oregon, the Columbia River had frozen over. Shit. I see, it's a big river. It's a big river. I see it. I see the yeah. map of it every day. It's a big river. Like, for that to freeze? Fuck. I think I, one of the things that I read said it was the coldest r winter on record. I believe it. In Nebraska, more than 600 people died due to blizzards. Um, Charlotte Bronte in Yorkshire, England, wrote, The cold here is dreadful. 
I do not remember such a series of North Pole days. England might really have taken a slide up to into the Arctic zone. The sky looks like ice. The earth is frozen. The wind is as keen as a two-edged knife. And so also, this is the same year. Same year. Like, if you've seen the TV show The Terror on AMC with the two ships that, like, they're like, oh, we're going to find the passage from England to China. We're going to go, like, just over the Arctic or whatever the hell. Find the northern passage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Northwest Passage. Obviously, well, not obviously. They didn't make it. uh, Spoiler um, alert. But yeah, (laughs) everybody is like suffering in this crazy winter of 1846. And they never found the Northwest Passage. No one found it. Everyone looked. They never did. Also, um, something that I, I read is like where they ended up staying is not too far from where Walt Disney eventually bought, uh, bought Sugar Bowl Sugar Bowl, I guess, which is like a ski place. Um, and the reason why he bought it and made it into a ski place is because on average, uh, every winter it gets like 41 inches of snow. <laughs> Something like this. So they are f- like just all kinds of fucked, you know? They're like in the middle of nowhere. No one is around. No one knows they're um, there. So... No one knows they're there because they're completely isolated. So around December 16th, or on December 16th of that year, they send a party of 17 people out. A couple come straight back and they're like, oh, never mind. (laughs) I don't want to. They're like, go find help for us. Um, The people that came back was like this guy who brought a young boy back because he was like only 10 or 11. And he was like, oh, you are definitely not going to make it. So he brought him back to the camp. That's a good person. Yeah. So, as evidence of how grim their choices were, four of the men were fathers and three of the women mothers who gave their young children to other women. So, among them was Amanda McCutcheon, who left her newborn baby Sarah behind. And we'll come back to Sarah in a minute. Uh, they packed lightly, taking what the, what had become six days rations. So, so, they had food for six days. A rifle, a blanket, a hatchet, and some pistols. So, later historian Charles McLashen would call this party the Forlorn Hope. They had made snowshoes, which were effective but awkward because it's, it wasn't the snowshoes so much, but it was that the snow that they were in was um, 12 feet deep. Oh, maybe I, it's not 41 inches. Maybe it's 41 feet. That would make more sense, I think. So, because the snow that they were walking in was 12 feet deep. Okay, yeah, that's a lot of snow. Um, and run, it's a dang lot of snow. <laughs> and rendered many of them snowblind by the third day. On the sixth day, William Eddy discovered that his wife had hidden a half pound of bear meat in his pack. Yay! So the group set out again the morning of December 21st, but the group quickly became lost and confused. After two more days of food, Patrick Dolan proposed that one of them should volunteer to die to feed the others. No one wanted to volunteer. So they drew straws because they were like, yeah, we're all starving. Um, we don't want to. No one wanted to do this. I mean, they had been starving at this point for months. Right. Um, Dolan himself ended up drawing the shortest straw <laughs> and was like, oh, um, never mind. <laughs> that was a bad idea. Um, I regret my choice to <laughs> offer this uh, as I am now the one who will be di- dying for you. I regret everything. Yeah, I thought it might have been one of the other people, and it wasn't. So Eddie Eddie kept um, suggesting that they just continue until someone just, the next person died, and then they maybe would eat that person. Um, But the blizzard had forced the group to halt 
Like they couldn't go any further. So Antonio, the animal handler, died, and then Franklin Graves was the next death. So they have not, by the time, right around this time, which is what, the 20th or something of December, they hadn't eaten anybody. A lot of people, when the Donner Party comes up, they're like, oh, they ate each other. I want to give a little bit of just other kinds of context. So there are biblical accounts of cannibalism, 10th century accounts of Christian crusaders eating captured Arabs, and widespread accounts of other kinds of religious cannibalism um, among indigenous peoples of South America, Polynesia, and North America. In contrast, survival cannibalism pops up during times of great famine when there are no other alternatives. So in 1920s Ukraine, so many bodies were disappearing from the tre- uh, streets because I guess there was a famine. Uh, yes, the Holodomor. That was a, that was a uh, that was the Holodomor was a Russian-induced famine. They because Ukraine is actually the the breadbasket of the region, and the the Russian gov well Soviet government said to keep kept making them give all the grain. So, yeah, if you keep giving away all the grain, there's no grain. There's nothing to eat. So, local authorities posted signs that read, eating dead children is barbarism. So it's not like they want to, you know? Yeah. Um, But during the 900-day siege of Leningrad from uh, 1941 to 44, local rations led to mass starvation, and then in that particular case, some instances instances of cannibalism. Um, during China's Great Leap Forward, a time in which some 35 million people starved to death, there were many reports of cannibalism in the smaller villages where they would um, like exchange, I guess they would exchange bodies. So like they would, if someone died, they would give the body to the village next, next village over and then vice versa so that they didn't have to eat anybody that they actually knew. That's kind of considerate. And that wasn't yeah, and that was actually what they did in the Donner Party. Like, these people, like, in so many movies, like, I saw this, like, movie called Donner's Pass. Not recently, actually, but it was a while back because I just am kind of fascinated by the Donner Party. But they re- represented them as, like, these, uh, this is offensive, but, I mean, it's, like, hillbillies, you know? Like, these people who are ignorant and just, like, crazy and starved for human flesh. And it's, like, they weren't like that, actually. And they went for a very long time. They were just, you know, nice, white, aristocrat colonizers that... <laughs> ate each other um okay but back at the camp it's christmas and margaret reed had secretly squirreled away a small stash of supplies too small under normal conditions to even make a meal but large enough now to constitute a feast it was a few dried apples a few beans a little tripe and one small piece of bacon so the kids were like oh my god and it was so good and they were they felt so spoiled they said it was the best christmas ever because of their conditions and then seeing this it was a lot unfortunately only a couple days later they had to begin eating the oxide that served as their roof So now without reasonable shelter from the winter storms, the family had split up into other people's cabins. The family was like not together anymore. Peggy Breen couldn't help but slip some of the Reed children um, some food, but she saw it more as like a way to ease their suffering as, as opposed to like extend their life. And she actually at some point pulled Margaret Reed aside and was like, maybe you should kill them. To <laughs> Like maybe that would be the compassionate thing to do. Yeah. Right. So, back at the forlorn crew, the people who had left earlier, Patrick Dolan, the guy who was like, hey, maybe we should eat each other, never mind, uh, he began to rant deliriously. He stripped off his clothes and ran into the woods. He returned shortly afterwards and died a few hours later. So, apparently, these are, like, um, 
symptoms of hypothermia, yeah. like being too cold. You get too cold and then your brain thinks you're too warm, so then you strip because you're you're like, I'm fine, I'm fine. But your body's yeah. really shutting yeah. down. Super counterintuitive, but your body, yeah, your body is just freaking out. So everybody in the party who was still alive ate his body, except for William Eddie. Salvador and Luis, the, the two Miwok guides, Salvador and Luis, they did not partake. So this is December 27th, um, months after they began slowly starving to death. So why now, uh, when they had been without food for six days at most, why did they start eating? And people don't really know, like eating each other, people don't really know, like, why that particular time, but it's probably having to do with like the psychological toll of starvation and being in the wilderness and people dying that you, you know, you've been traveling with for months and they're dying around you. And so they're like, just overwhelmed by everything. They might have also know. said, if I die, use me as substance so you can live. Yeah, actually. You're totally right, actually. There were a lot of people who were like, if they said that, they they volunteered, they were like, when I die, I want you to, like, just take my meat, you know, and um, eat. So, to be clear, no one ate their family members. They cut strips of flesh so thin that they couldn't tell it was human, carefully labeled, and or separated the meat so no one would have to eat a family member. That said, they were, like, still super ashamed and felt guilty about it. And, like, they're, uh, in every account, they said that they, like, wouldn't make eye contact with each other as they ate. Um, I mean, that's fair. So, <laughs> like, um. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. It's reluctant cannibalism. Nope, it's not, not like, rejoice. Like, they're not enjoying it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just to survive. So, Eddie, who had previously said that he wasn't going to uh, eat people he had to eventually start partaking um they began to take apart their snowshoes and eat the oxhide webbing and discuss killing luis and salvador their miwok guides for food um but eddie had warned the two men and they quietly left he was like hey these guys they want to murder you to eat you so probably go which is super unfortunate because um they were the only two people who kind of knew the land right so they they left. Um, another guy dies. They eat him. Okay. Oh, so this I want to go back to, like, civilization, quote unquote. So around this time, the Illinois Gazette wrote this article, Rules for Wives. A good wife will always receive her husband with smiles, <laughs> leaving nothing undone to render home agreeable and gratefully reciprocate kindness and attention. She will study to discover means to gratify his inclinations in regard to food and cooking, in the management of her family, in her dress, manner, and deportment. She will, in everything, reasonably comply with his wishes and, as far as possible, anticipate them. Ugh. So this is like what's happening at the time where other people live, actually. And um, there were, just as a side note to my side note, there were rules for husbands. A good husband will always regard his wife as his equal, which I thought was progressive for 1846. Um, treat her with kindness, respect, and attention, and never address her with an air of authority as if she were, as, hum as some husbands appear to regard their wives, mere housekeepers. So I thought that was like... An interesting kind of, oh, this is what's happening where people are and there are newspapers. Meanwhile, 
To a large extent, the Forlorn Hope crew were barefoot now, their shoes having disintegrated or having been eaten, um, and the shreds of the blanket in which they were... So they had wrapped their feet in the blanket, mm-hmm. um, and now that was beginning to s- disintegrate. By the time they reached the bottom of the canyon, their feet, already cracked and swollen, had been lacerated by the sharp rocks of the canyon wall. Their clothes had been burned through in places from crowding too close to their nightly fires. Their garments were so tattered that neither the women nor the men could even begin to maintain their modesty any longer. Thighs and breasts and buttocks peeked out from under the miserable rags that hung limply from their shoulders. So they're pretty dang haggard. And, like, it's been fucking months since they've uh, had any kind of real meal or anything. Yeah. So uh, several more days, 25 since they left the lake, the main camp, they came across Salvador and Luis, who had not eaten for about nine days and were close to death. So at this point, William Foster shot them, believing that their flesh was the last, uh, the group's last hope of avoiding imminent death from starvation. Um, so now they shot the two people who had been leading them through the wilderness. Back at the camp, one-year-old Harriet McCutcheon, and I have here, I don't know how she's still alive at this point, because she's only one year old. Yeah. And her mom, remember, Amanda McCutcheon is part of this Forlorn Hope crew. Um, she has lice. Oh. So the baby had scratched until she bled. So the Graves family, which had been looking after her, tied her arms to her sides. And the baby then continued to, like, just scream relentlessly. And Patty Reed, like, said that she it haunted her forever. Just the baby's screams. As she, the baby was, like, tied up and so that she wouldn't scratch herself anymore. I believe that would be haunting. That That's the stuff of nightmares. That would be... F- Yes, that's so sad. I just imagined this tiny baby, like, all tied up. Ugh. So on January 12th, the group stumbled into a Miwok camp. So this is only a few days after they killed Luis and Salvador. It was just a couple days after them. And then they stumbled into a Miwok camp, which was the tribe that Luis and Salvador came from. <laughs> and the Miwok people, when they got there, they saw this group of people who were just haggard as fuck. And they're like, Oh, holy shit and uh, and initially they like ran away from them because they were like there's fucking monsters coming from the mountain right yeah um but this particular tribe gave them what they had to eat so they ate some acorns grass and pine nuts after a few days at their camp eddie continued on to a ranch in a small farming community and um hurriedly assembled a rescue party who got the other six survivors from the Miwok camp that had been taking care of them ps their journey from the Truckee lake had been had taken 33 days and remember they had left with six days rations damn but this was the start of the rescue yay Yay! so first rescue trip back so this is eddie william eddie by the time eddie's team um made it back everything was covered in snow like the cabins, there was the equivalent of two stories worth of snow. The cabins were completely submerged. Um, boo, 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 boo. So they, they didn't see anybody. They didn't see any even buildings. So they were like, halloo. They, it's, that's how it's spelled out. H A, like multiple L's, multiple O's. Halloo. And so then, the, um, then some like buddy like crawls out of the snow. And this is like a big thing that's in all the books. Levina Murphy says, are you men from California or do you come from heaven? Because they had been delirious. They had been hallucinating. You know, they had not eaten. The relief party doled out food in small portions, concerned that it might kill them if the emaciated immigrants, emigrants, um, overate. 
23 people were chosen to go with the rescue party, leaving 21 in the cabins at Truckee Lake and 12 at Alder Creek. That's back where the Donner Party was. Remember, because it kind of separated. Yeah. So they made it back. But William Hook, this is maybe one of the sadder deaths, too. William Hook, who was 12 years old after surviving all of this, he made it to, you know, quote unquote civilization back where there's like people and broke into food stores and overate himself to death. Because his body couldn't handle all the food. Oh, Isn't that super sad? It's sad, but it's also very much a 12-year-old boy thing to do. Yeah, yeah. He, like, broke in and was like, oh, my God. Like, I imagine, like, some, like, the kid in uh, Willy Wonka. But, I mean, that's horrible. I mean, because that was real life and that was a movie. Oh, Augustus Gloop, who falls into the, the river. <laughs> he Augustus Glooped himself to death. Blue, blue Blueberry lady, right? Is that not? T- oh, Violet, yes. Violet, you're turning violet. So then there's James Reed, too. Remember who had been banished and like was delayed because of the Mexican-American War? So he came and uh, evacuated 17 people, only three of whom were adults. So most of them were kids. Um, And then on the way back, the second... uh, This is super... I was like, oh my god, that's so fucking graphic. Um... Five-year-old Isaac Donner froze to death and Reed nearly died. Mary Donner's feet were badly burned because they were so frostbitten that she didn't realize she was sleeping with them in the fire. Oh my gosh. So intense. So then how the hell is she going to continue? I don't know. Uh, when the storm passed, the Breen and Graves families were too apathetic and exhausted to get up and move, having not eaten for days. The relief party had no choice but to leave without them. So at this point, there had been two rescue trips right so that one by eddie and one by james reed and so then there's a third trip um which which is they're going they're going back and they're going to get the kids and everything um so they got the rest of the people there except for because george donner you know the man who's this is like like who the party was named after like will not be abandoned by tamsin donner who's like the get shit done lady who has diaried the whole time and like journaled the whole time right so they're like we're not that probably won't come back for you at this point like you should come with us and she's like i'm not abandoning my husband so they they leave now other people come and this is when so this at uh, okay meanwhile at this point after the first rescue party like news reports started coming out oh my god these people were eating everybody and um these are like barbarians savages and this is where a lot of this the donner party cannibalism like comes from um that said the keysburg guy the wife beater slash old man abandoner was there and when um a bunch of people came back they saw him surrounded with surrounded by a bunch of bodies and including the one of tams and donner so there was a whole like jury or whatever a case trial whatever it's called and um they ended up saying okay it was probably survival uh, cannibalism but he became kind of like the mm, image or the face of the donner party unfortunately because he was just surrounded by bodies and had like sucked out brains of women and stuff so that was what stuck yeah yeah oh and apparently like liver if if you're ever stuck in the like wilderness you you gotta eat the liver first because that'll go bad liver and heart go bad and brains have to be sucked out yeah you gotta eat the organs first yeah the other stuff will uh, stay apparently i'm a vegetarian (laughs) 
so I'm like, I'm like, okay, well, good, good to know. I, I guess. I hope I never need this. Um, don't go hiking ever. <laughs> Tell people where you're going all the time. Of the 87 members of the party, 48 survived to reach California. Many of them having eaten the dead for survival. So, so. 28 men died and only eight women. And a lot of people are like, how did that happen? Why are so many men dying? And so some people will say, well, it's because um, the men had more physical labor to do because they had to like cut those trees down and cut the brush and like do things with the oxen or whatever. And then the counterpoint is, well, women had to do a lot of things too. They had to like wash the clothes. They had to take care of things. They were walking alongside the men at some point and they very much were equal at the end doing everything that the men were doing. Um, so then biologically, male bodies need more calories than female bodies, uh, which can subsist longer because their bodies tend to retain more fat, um, especially when going into starvation mode, I guess. And then among the ones that, die- that died, it tended to be the youngest and the oldest that died. Okay, of the people who died in their 20s, it tended to only be single men. Huh. Only one of the men in their 20s, which is William Eddy, the kind, the guy who like saved a bunch of people, lived. The other seven men in their 20s died. And so people speculate that it was because they were traveling alone as hired hands. So they had more physical labor to do and none of the familial or social connections because they were just hired help, you know? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, relationally, the... Yeah, the people who survived were well connected. And so I thought that this was in a book and I was like, oh, that could be read in so many ways. Um, It says people are good for people. Um, (laughs) Which I thought could be like, you know, for the Donner Party story. Well, okay, I guess. Um, (laughs) And that's the story of the Donner Party. Woo! Terrifying. How did, so wait, the the Donners, they all just kind of died because... They didn't eat, like, the last group? Yeah. So, oh, and, like, during one of the first trips or the second trips, Mm -hmm. uh, Tamsin was like, please take my kids, please take my kids. And these two guys were like, sure. One of them was had the last name of Stone. And they were like, sure, we'll take your kids. And they were like, wait, these kids aren't going to make it. And so they didn't take, they, like, left her kids at the other camp. So she found out and was like, the hell like and she went and saw her kids that had been left behind and she was like i hope someone takes you and she went back to george and those kids actually ended up surviving but they it was super sad because they don't remember what she looks like they don't remember what the parents look like um yeah but the two two families survived like all together i think the reed family Mm -hmm. survived like the whole reed family dang and then another family yeah family survived which was i mean obviously given you hear the story it's like that's pretty impressive um yeah i just i just think it's interesting because of course like i heard this when i was probably in middle school or something and i was like oh my god cannibals right (laughs) yeah but as as you get deeper into it it's there's so many different factors having to do with like um and, and I maybe didn't cover this as much, but like the native, the indigenous people at some point during the desert, like people were laughing at them. They heard people laughing at them, the Donner Party, which were, you know, the indigenous people. Um, and uh, <laughs> probably because they were traveling during the day, like y- your best bet for a desert is at night. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, what are you doing? Like, what? really? You're choosing this so, path? Really? You're choosing this path? Good job, people. <laughs> Like, it's not even a path. 
that they uh, that people who aren't like land illiterate would recognize right so they're just fucking going westward they're like let's go west it's just crazy especially now when we have like gps like i have a friend who uses gps like everywhere and i'm like you know where it is why do you need gps to go like fucking three miles away (laughs) and it's just habit and now like to think these people were not navigators they were just rich people who sat around and went to church and read things and thought about things and here they are like in the middle of the desert haggard and dying it's just crazy blows my mind oh and i thought i I wrote to daniel um who's my co-host on 33 percent pulp and i was like this is like an analogy for the hubris of western expansionism and you know masculinity they won't go back they would not go back to fort bridger you know they would not go back because it would um be embarrassing right that they failed in some ways like yeah the story is like that they failed you know that the land got the better of them you know Oh yeah. A lot of like a lot of western s- stories are like, "Oh, we can do this and we we did it and we got this land or whatever the fuck." And now this particular story is like, "Oh, and then they ate each other." <laughs> and we're buried in the snow. It would have been less embarrassed like they would have all survived if they would have gone back and it would have been less embarrassing cuz they would not be known to history as such a failure. Like so the fact that they were right. too Having too much toxic masculinity and being like, we're not going back. We're not asking for directions is exactly why they're known to history. Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah, yeah. And I think it's so funny that Tamsin Donner in the beginning, she was like, oh, the hardest part isn't starting, you know, Yeah. (laughs) which is such a cliche now. And sometimes it's a lot of times I suppose it's true. But, you know, in that particular case, I don't think it was. (laughs) Lindsay, thank you for your wonderful story. You want to tell everybody where to find you and your wonderful podcast? Sure. And thank you for having me again. Thanks for letting me talk into your ears. Um, yeah, my podcast, 33% Pulp, should be available wherever. I don't think we're on Spotify yet, unfortunately. But we are on Apple Podcasts and every other podcast app. On social media, I'm mostly active on Twitter at 33 underscore pulp. And on Instagram, we're at 33 pulp. We do have a Facebook page, but I rarely check it. So please don't actually go there. Thank you for listening to The Cult of Domesticity. We are available on all podcatchers. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter at The Domestic Podcast and Instagram at The Cult of Domesticity. If you have a topic request, information, or want to send us a recipe, please email us at thedomesticpodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe and share with all your friends. Remember to stay domestic and cult-free.